All right. Will you turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, as we continue to look at this interaction between Jesus and Peter and the disciples. Last week, verses 16 through 17 of chapter 16 was a, a deep dive, if you remember, into what we see as divine revelation and particularly of understanding who Jesus is as a result of that divine revelation. This is what Peter was experiencing and what our Lord was applauding. We cannot ignore verses 16 through 17 and the fact that Jesus makes a big point of praise, Peter, You did not come to this understanding of who I am on your own. It was my Father in heaven who has given you this gift so that you even know what to confess. And so some take this interaction between Peter and Jesus to mean that Peter had an experience with Jesus of his own timing and of his own initiative and of his own choosing. But the praise that Jesus gives to Peter in verse 17, I think, makes it very clear that knowledge of Jesus Christ is impossible apart from divine revelation. And specifically what we call particular revelation, it's a gift from the Father. And so Jesus Christ is, more importantly, this particular revelation from the Father is not this mystic Hocus pocus on meditation thing. It is Jesus Christ himself is the particular revelation from the Father. And the Holy Spirit imparts upon the believer this understanding of Christ. That's what we looked at last week. So it's important to understand and to observe that Peter here did not have a Christ experience of his own revelation. But he had the experience with Christ. This was the product of God's revelation. This encounter between Jesus and Peter was not of Peter's making. It was the result of the revelation of God the Father. So Jesus continues now, when we look at verses 18 through 20, he continues to praise this divine revelation that Peter had here. And and as he speaks of the Petra or the rock as the foundational cornerstone of his church, Simon Barjona is now given a new name, Petros. We're going to look at this today. And it's a play on words in the Aramaic and the Greek. Much has been gleaned here from this statement in church history and in theology. But today I think that we as the church, we can be encouraged by the words of Jesus here. This declaration of praise by our Lord, it honestly has less to do with Peter and everything to do with the head of the church, who is Christ Jesus himself, our Lord, the son of the living God. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. And let's read verses 18 through 20 together of Matthew chapter 16. Actually, I want to begin in verse 17 because I think that sets the tone for the rest. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, 
And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father God Almighty, we thank you for your word. And we thank you and praise you for the confession that we are able to give to the world of who your son is. He is the Christ, the Messiah. He is your son. And Lord, as we proclaim this individually to our, to others around us and even to ourselves, I pray God this morning that in your word you would show us what our role is as the church in this. Because Jesus actually proclaims boldly here a foundation for his church. And sometimes, Lord, we miss that. Because we get so caught up in the busyness and the details of operating a church, Lord, we forget the foundation of this gathering of your faithful. And so, God, I pray this morning you'd speak to us and that you'd reveal to us things that we may be overlooking, reveal to us areas of our hearts that are sinful and unbelieving in this establishment of your church and why it's here. Lord, we are to proclaim boldly that your son, Jesus Christ, is your son and that he is the Christ, the Savior of us all. And so, God, allow us to see this and to, to know it and to and proclaim it boldly. We can't do this apart from your will and apart from your strength. So we need you this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. This passage today, I mean, it focuses our attention on what is called ecclesiology. And this is your theology 101 lesson for the day. What is ecclesiology? Ecclesiology is the theology of the church. It's nothing that mankind manufactures, or actually good theology of the church comes from Scripture. And this is a foundational passage for us as the church But in order to do this, we must consider some of the ideas on how theology and and the church relate. It's not going to be a theology lesson today, but this is important for us to lay some groundwork. By the 19th century, many theologians argued that Christian faith was rooted in experience. One's consciousness of God superseded God's revelation and his objective truth of himself. So by the 19th century in the church, there was a emphasis and a growing teaching that understanding and knowledge of God comes through experience. The problem here is that this knowledge of God, this objective truth of who God is and his will, it's revealed truth not of us or in our spirit, but rather Divine truth was revealed, is revealed and granted by God himself. That's the issue. Yet if the emphasis is on our experience of God, we miss the origin of this understanding of who God is. Christian faith can be a very subjective thing, meaning that we as individuals, we do have individual experiences with our Lord. We also have subjective individual experiences even within the fellowship of the body. 
Let's not ignore that. That's a reality of the faith. And this fellowship with other believers can become so alluring that it distracts us from the origin of the truth of who Christ is, and that origin of the truth is from God himself. And But our experiences together in the church, if we're not careful, they're so appealing, aren't they? And rightly so, they can substitute and replace what God is saying in our hearts and to our minds and through his word. The experiences within church fellowship and worship can be a distraction from the origin of this experience. Remember, that to understand what the church is, we have to understand what the word means. And you could argue that the word, the Greek word here is ekklesia, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, if you're taking notes. The ekklesia is the assembly of the called, the assembly of God's people. It's the same idea that was even in the Old Testament with the children of Israel. When they would gather together, they were called the assembly. We see this in the book of Nehemiah, very, very thick. The assembly of God's people in Nehemiah chapter 8, what did they do? They assembled for the reading of God's word and the explanation of it. The right order of understanding how the church is to gather together and how the church is to focus corporate worship has to glean from God's word, from the passages of scripture like Matthew 16, 17. The purpose of gathering as the church can be thought of not as a time to transmit a Christian experience. Notice the warning here against experience alone. Instead, the purpose of gathering for worship as the church is to serve as a confession, as a proclaiming, as a heralding of God's word. More so that and less the experience together. Now, the experience together, I think we can jointly and corporately proclaim the truth of who Jesus is in the experience of our worship. The problem is when the when our experience and how we feel becomes more important than the word and the truth that we are to proclaim. I think that's part of what Jesus is getting to here. You see, the word of God is that which has been revealed to us in the word has been revealed to us in Christ Jesus, the son of God. That's the word of God that we are to proclaim. This word is embraced by the faithful, those who are called, and does not involve worshipful experiences, but these experiences do not precede the divine revelation that God the Father delivered to us through his Son and imparted to us by his Holy Spirit once and all delivered by to the saints. Jude verse 3, if you're taking notes, Jude verse 3 is a foundation for this understanding of who we are as God's people. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We contend for the faith that is not foundational in our personal subjective experiences. We contend for the faith 
that was once for all delivered to the saints. A faith, a confession, a proclamation of truth that was defined and proclaimed long before you and I were ever born. Even long before the United States came to be, folks. When seeking God's intent for his church, we must take care to avoid the emphasis on both our individual ism, our, this is my feeling, this is just my faith between me and my Jesus, and how dare you tell me any otherwise. And if I go, and if I come to church and have a bad experience, then I'm just not coming back. That's individualism in the church. We also have to avoid the emphasis on institutionalism, meaning that we raise the institution of the church beyond its intended place. Because this is God's church. We are not an institution that is above our Father. The church is not an assembly of like-minded persons who have made similar decisions for Jesus Christ. You hear me? The church is not a divinely constituted religious institution whose religious rituals automatically confer faith or guarantee salvation. Nothing that we do here in corporate worship earns your salvation, folks. Nor is there anything that we do in our corporate worship that defines your salvation. It's God's word. The church, this is Christ's church, the one that he says here is my church, has power and insight, yes, but only as these are given by the Spirit of God through his Son. The church through the Spirit is both the begetter of faith and the receiver of faith. It's both. It's it's its own rites and ceremonies. The church's rituals, the church's ceremonies have little value except when they are used by the Spirit to instruct and to edify the saints. So as we as the church here at Sovereign Grace, as we have, we have a rhythm of worship, we have certain things that we do. There is a rhythm on Sunday morning. There's a rhythm when we gather. These are intended to instruct and to encourage us not to define us or dictate to us. See the point? That is, those who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, the saints, those he has called together, are instructed and edified and encouraged together when we assemble as Jesus is calling us to assemble. Why are we here? Partly, largely, is to edify one another, to encourage each other for a bigger purpose. Theologian P.T. Forsyth says this, and I think this helps. He rightly observes this about experiential worship. In other words, this is what he says about the emphasis of experience in worship. He says, it is not the sense of experience that is the main matter, but the source of the experience and its content. It is not our experience we are conscious of. That would be self-conscious piety. It is of Christ instead. When we have an experience, and we do, we have experience when we come together. The experience is not the point. It's the source of the experience, the content of the experience. And that is Jesus Christ himself. That is the point. Now, let's, let's keep in mind that Christian experiences are valid. 
We all have Christian experiences. I hope you do. I hope you're not so cold-hearted that you do not experience the mercy and the grace and the tenderness and the kindness of our Lord. But as these experiences are initiated in Jesus Christ, that's where they are valid. The experience of coming to faith in Jesus Christ is not a religious experience as much as it is an evangelical regenerative experience. Being made new is an experience, but it's being made new and being regenerated through an awakened heart to the truth of the gospel. That's the experience. This is why Jesus applauds in Peter here in Matthew 16, verse 17. Remember? And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter's confessing an awakening of the heart here. And Jesus, he applauds that, doesn't he? Now let's look here at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That's segueing from the, uh, the applause that Jesus gives him of flesh and blood is not revealed as to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And you could segue that into, and on this rock, I will build my church. You see, this phrase from Jesus takes the origin of Peter's confession to its application in the fallen world. The fall of the first man and the first woman, what did it do? It ushered in a distortion of the original good, the original perfect creation that God made, and, and a will, because a willing surrender is cast aside to the authority of God. You see, what's happening here in the original fall is that the original man and the original woman, Adam and Eve, they willingly surrendered not to God's authority, but to the authority of the accuser, Satan himself. You see, that's the thing. When we are under the authority of the Creator, it's not a willing authority, it's not a willing submission. It's kind of like moms and dads. Do you give your children, boy, I really wish that you would want to obey me. Fathers and mothers in this room, you don't come to your children and say, now, when you decide you want to obey me, then we'll, then it'll be okay. No, God the Father created us to obey. God the Father created us to be submissive under His authority. Where sin comes in is when we willingly said no. The only choice we made was to forbid that authority to disgrace that authority. That was the source of our sin. Sin is the act of a, a sinful will. You see, the kingdom of heaven that is the center of Jesus' teaching, remember back in Matthew chapter 5-7, through there in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this clear. It is established there that the kingdom of heaven is not a part of human effort or human will or human creativity. Jesus, Jesus makes clear that the kingdom of heaven will be established in the hearts of men. That the kingdom of heaven is something that is established by the Father in heaven through the Son. And Jesus makes clear here in, in verse 18 of Matthew 16 that his church will be founded upon the rock. The word here is Petra. 
not the 1980s Christian hard rock band that I grew up with. Is, anybody, is Petra still around, I think? So, young people, are, is Petra still a thing? Or is, they're, they're out, okay, they're, they're old school, right? What's that? They're old now, yeah. When, I guess when you're, a, even when, as a Christian rock band, if you're in your 60s and 70s, you're no longer relevant, I guess. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, uh, he's saying here that he makes it clear that his church, his church will be founded upon the rock. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. First, we see Simon Barjona. This is in verse 17, given a new identity by and in Christ Jesus. Remember, and I tell you, you are Peter Petros. He's given a new name here. Now, just as the Father in heaven gives Peter knowledge of Jesus, now Jesus gives Peter knowledge of Peter. Here's who you are now, Peter. The Lord has revealed to you something that is transformative of your very being. Peter is no longer Simon. <laughs> Peter is now Peter, the rock, and he's of Jesus' church. In this exchange, we see the first lesson in what makes up the church. There is a historical dispute on this verse. Here, verse 18. There's a historical dispute between Roman Catholic tradition and Reformed Protestants. Roman Catholics believe that Jesus especially honors the office and person of Peter as the founder of the church and as the first pope. That's the Roman Catholic interpretation. Reformed Protestants believe that Jesus honors not Peter the man as much as he honors Peter's faith and Peter's confession. Yet it's clear that Jesus, I think he does honor both Peter the man and Peter the confessor. Because as Jesus, as Peter is confessing, what is he doing? He's pointing to Christ, isn't he? That's what Jesus is honoring here. One who points to Christ. It is undeniable here that Jesus does raise Peter up as a leader in the church. We can't ignore that historical and biblical fact. He was already serving this role among the twelve. Peter was already the leader here. He was seen as the leader of Jesus' twelve. Even then. And the history recorded in Acts chapter 2 reveals that Peter opened the gates of the kingdom to the Jews at the day of Pentecost and to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Jesus changed Peter, and we cannot and should not avoid this or discredit it. Jesus actually does honor the man Peter, but not for the reason that the Catholic Church does. It was the particular man, Peter, who was granted the gift of understanding back in verse 17, and the particular man, Peter, who Jesus imparts a new identity to and the gift of responsibility for the church here in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So I think there's some truth there that the church is also built in Peter, on Peter as the leader of the church. That's partly there as well. We can't ignore that. But now... the. The apostle Paul, though, he does praise Peter as the one who points to the righteous foundation of the church, Jesus Christ. Yet Paul also criticizes Peter in Galatians chapter 2 because as the head of the church, Peter played the game and ignored the Gentiles and had favoritism toward the Jews. 
But he was criticized because, hey, Peter, not only are you a Christian, you're also the leader of the church here. You should set a better example. You see, we can't ignore here that Peter, that Paul, or that Peter was raised up as a leader here. And Jesus, I think here in verse 17, does kind of use, this is part of what he's saying here. Peter, you are now a leader. The apostle Paul calls only Christ the foundation of the church though. So we can't take here in verse 18 what the, what the Catholics do, that Jesus, or that Jesus is establishing Peter as the foundation of the church. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, he himself being a church planter, calls Jesus Christ the foundation of all the church. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 10, According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So who is the foundation of the church? Who is the cornerstone, the rock of the church? Jesus Christ himself. Now, back here in Matthew 16, 18, let's look here further at what Jesus says. He does encourage and establish Peter here. But he says in the second half, I will build my church. Y'all see that? Who builds the church? Jesus Christ himself. So before we get carried away in celebrating Peter as the man who will be rightly remembered in church history as the first great leader of the church, we can't ignore that. Let's focus on who built the church. And then we'll have a more clear perspective on who the rock is here. Jesus builds his church he boldly declares that this is not one of those verses that is ambiguous or vague. It is very direct and clear. Okay. This is very clear. Jesus says, I will build here. I will build. Now underline those words in your Bibles, if you wish, to remind yourself that Peter does not build the church. You and I do not build the church. Jesus says what? I will build. And there's a reason why he's doing this. The picture in this declaration is not Peter who builds Christ's church. Rather, it's Jesus himself who takes our pointing, our confession, our evangelism, our witness, and actually uses it, if you will, as mortar for building up the church. Can you get that picture? Anybody here ever laid brick? Bill has. You've laid brick? Yeah. Or a rock wall. Everybody worked with mortar. I, I, I think uh, Nathan and Crystal, you, y'all are working with mortar now. On They just bought a house and they're renovating some things around the fireplace. And yeah, you're working with mortar right now. It's a sticky substance that's supposed to be pretty solid. That's what Jesus is doing here. He, he's using us. He's using our confession, which points to him as the Christ. He uses our evangelism, which is a proclamation of that truth, our witness of that reality, and he uses this as the mortar for building the church because Jesus says, my church, not us. This church is Jesus' own possession. Those who the Father gives the Son, that's what we see in John chapter 17 in Jesus' prayer. Who is the church? It's those who the Father gives to the Son. That Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. 
So it is this pointing, this Peter who is pointing to Christ, the one confessing Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, who Jesus uses as this first stone, if you will, or this first brick that is chosen for building up the church. Jesus, the cornerstone, and then you start laying rocks and bricks around that and you build up the church. Now, this is figurative language here. You know, Jesus gives this honor as the first stone in the many, many figurative stones that will make up his church. The figurative stones are the actual lives that Jesus brings together to make an assembly, to make a community. The bricks, the stones that Jesus builds with are truly regenerate hearts. Those who humbly listen to and live the true confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We looked at that in depth last week. If a genuine heart cannot truly confess, and I emphasize truly confess, not just mimic, truly confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is the result of the Father in heaven and the Spirit permitting and causing and transforming the heart so that that genuine confession is real. The church's mission consists simply and loyally to in pointing to Christ, the Son of the living God. You want to know why the church assembles? You want to know why Jesus is building the church? It's so that we point to Him. And that's just what Peter's doing here in Peter's confession. That's the example for us. He is confessing and pointing to who? Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who we are, folks. Now, later on, let's move on in verse 18. Jesus says, and the gates of hell, or some translations, and the gates of Hades or the gates of death shall not prevail against it. This is something that Jesus makes very clear. Jesus employs, he's, he's using particular language here, using the term gates of hell or gates of Hades. Now, now the gates of Hades were the ancient mind's way of saying the place or the powers of death. So your translations may be gates of hell, gates of Hades, or gates of death. Because in the ancient mind, that's what this meant. Hades was the place of the dead. And the ancient mind actually feared that once someone passed through these gates, they would never return. Can you imagine living with that fear? That upon death, you were trapped in death and you were trapped in Hades? That was the fear of the ancient mind. The idea went actually beyond Jewish tradition here. Even the Greeks and the Romans held to an afterlife where no one returned after passing through the gates of death. This wasn't just a Jewish idea. It was also a Greek and Roman ancient mind idea. But Jesus promises in this passage that his church would have the power to come back through the gates of death. The gates of hell will not prevent resurrection. That's the key to the Christian faith here. That's the key to the church that Jesus is establishing. Jesus promises his church the power to come back through the gates of death. Jesus' resurrection will lead the way back out of death 
and eternal life, and we are guaranteed and promised the same. You see what he's saying here? The Christian answer to this death question is, is not reincarnation, which is that your lives continue. It's not immortality, meaning that there really is no death, that life continues. The Christian answer to death is resurrection. And who is the resurrection and the life? Jesus our Lord, John chapter 11 tells us that. Now let's look here at verse 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, this is another verse taken out of context. You probably heard a lot of teaching on this verse that you're thinking, wow, I've got power. Wouldn't that be appealing? Jesus is giving us power. Woo-hoo! We could build a mega church on that, couldn't we? And then we would no longer be a church. You see, taken out of context, this verse has been used as a rallying cry for the power of the church and even the power of the person, the individual, to stand up against the evil of satanic forces. And and this has also been used to claim that whatever it is that one's power claims for oneself, you now have the power, based on the words of Jesus, to claim it. This is one of their foundational verses. It's a, it's a verse that too many false teachers have used to actually mislead the vulnerable. And that's what happens when these charismatic, and I use the word charismatic as not, uh, not hocus pocus speaking in tongues. I'm using the word charismatic as very appealing and entertaining. It, 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 nothing wrong with entertaining sermons, okay? To the level of they, you have to have the attention of the people. But you can't let that dominate the gospel. But false teachers use that to mislead the vulnerable. And they mislead them into a false sense of self-governing power. This verse here is used out of context to elevate the power of the self over the power of Christ, who is the son of the living God. Look here at verse 19 again. I will give you the keys of the... He's talking to Peter. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I mean, taken out of context, that sounds very powerful. But when we embrace the power for ourselves and we toss away Christ Jesus himself, who is the power, we've now taken this verse out of context. You see, Jesus describes the context of the church here. And it's, it's, it, it describes a relevant context of the church, not just in Peter's time, but across time, even to the present. Do you realize that in 2022, we here, Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, we are part of a timeline of the church That'll blow your mind if you sit and really ponder that for a minute. We're not the first church to show up. We are a continual, a continuation of the church that Jesus himself established. 2,000 plus years. I mean, his church is the gathering of the faithful who are transformed, remember, by the revelation of God himself through his son and imparted by his Holy Spirit. His church points to the Christ, the son of the living God, and his church has been doing this for 2,000 plus years. 
just as Peter pointed to Jesus as the Christ through his confession of adoration and praise, so does the church do this. Now, now, the theologian Carl F.H. Henry, he helps us see the challenges of seeing today's church just as relevant as the day that Jesus established the church 2,000 years ago. Because we, just like them, are to proclaim and confess and point to Jesus. Here's what Carl Henry says, God's revelation fulfills its divine purpose when knowledge of it transforms life and living in the modern world as fully as it did when the first believers responded to God's grace. You hearing those words? God's revelation fulfills its divine purpose when knowledge of it transforms life and living in the modern world as fully as it did when the first believers responded to God's grace. These words from Jesus here in verse 19 describe the relevant purpose of the church, not a giving of power to the individual. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We understand this in the context that God's revelation is just as relevant today in the modern world as it was in the first century of the church. That's what verse 19 is helping us see. I mean, if we connect these words to the words of divine revelation back in verse 17, we're going to begin to see the grand picture of God's design for his kingdom. The church is where the kingdom lives. We, as God's people, we, the the kingdom lives out through us. The kingdom is established in our hearts. When God's word is the center of all church gatherings, all assembly of God's people, now, now, when I say God's Word, I'm not talking about just preaching, but also everything, the music and, and the teaching moments, even the fellowship. When all of this is centered around God's Word, then God's Word is delivered in this present moment, and, and it loosens the grip of sin and binds the satanic powers. That's what loosening and binding means here in verse 19. These binding and loosing passages tell us that these disciples when they bound and loosed on earth, will have been. Notice that. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound, will be bound, has been bound, however you want to look at that, on earth and shall be loosed in heaven. It's actually language of completion. It's already been done, meaning the task has already been accomplished in Christ's redemption of fallen sinners. What has already been done in Christ will have been accomplished whenever the faithful Christian is obedient to reveal what God has already done, what he has already revealed. Again, this goes back to Jude verse 3, right? That which has been condemned for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, the church here in verse 19, Jesus is not saying you're going to do something grand and new in the church. It's what's already been done. That's the point. And and when we confess and proclaim Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the Son of the living God, the Messiah, what happens? Sin is bound. 
the grip of sin is loosened and we are now free from the shackles and then sin itself is bound as the kingdom of heaven binds it. That's what he's pointing to here. This loosing of God's word spoken by these disciples will actually implement the will, implement the purpose and the decisions of God whose revelation they preach. When we preach the truth of the gospel, when we live out the truth of the gospel, that's what we mean by preaching. Now, I'm preaching here in the pulpit, but not everyone is called to preach this in this manner. But we are all called to preach and proclaim and live out the gospel so that we point to Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when we do that, God is using that proclamation. He's using that confession as his word spoken through us in our lives And that's part of his will. That's part of his purpose. That's part of his decision to form the church. That's why we're here, folks. We're not here to be entertained by Nathan's great musical talent or be mesmerized by the Stewart family's harmonies. We're not here to be mesmerized even by the droning on and on of Pastor Brian's voices. Y'all are supposed to laugh at that. Thank you. Some of you fall asleep. Some of you don't. Some of you are enthralled. Some of you are going, okay, when's he going to be done? That's not why we come. Please don't come here because Pastor Brian is preaching today. Please don't come here because the music is great. Please don't come here because even the fellowship is wonderful. Come here because we're here to proclaim something. We're here to proclaim something. We're to confess something in our fellowship together. When we assemble together, we are actually confessing something. And who is it that we confess? It's Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And when that happens, here's what Jesus says in verse 19. When that happens, whatever you bind on earth will be, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's what God is doing here. No, I mean, there's no truth here in verse 19 about a power of magic or enchantment that the name it and claim it word of faith people promote. It's not here at all. No truth in the human will now having a power that directs God's will. That's not what verse 19 is saying because that's the context that it has been twisted into being. Jesus is not giving us permission and and granting us power that somehow directs God's will. Don't you, don't you wish that you could tell God what to do? Let's just confess sometimes we may fall into that trap, but God does, I mean, He listens, but you know what? He's God. His will will surpass our will every time. I mean, instead, it's the Spirit and the Word that carry out the purposes of God through us. Second Timothy chapter 2 helps us see this. Uh, Paul says to Timothy in the second epistle, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the Word of God is not bound. So when you look at verse 19, do not walk away thinking that Jesus says we're going to bind anything in the kingdom. 
Because the word of God, according to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, but the word of God is not bound. What Jesus speaks here to his disciples in verse 19 is the purpose of his church in the revelation of God's will and purpose. We are an instrument of God, of his son, as he establishes the church. We are this instrument, this tool, this purpose of his church is to reveal God's will and God's purpose by proclaiming and confessing the truth through his word. It is through this faithful proclamation, this faithful confession of the divinely revealed truth, this divinely revealed message of salvation that impacts the human will. And that's what we're called to do. I want to close with this. Notice the connection between what Peter will do on earth and its relation to what will be done in heaven. Here in verse 19. The heaven to earth and the earth to heaven connection of the church is vital to God's revelation of himself to the creation that rejects him. When people see the church, they see the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's not take this too far because it has been twisted that we define the kingdom of heaven by our own power. That's what's coming out of the Bethel movement out in California. That's not what we're talking about here. This heaven to earth and earth to heaven language, it is a connection of the church because we are God's revelation of himself to the creation that rejected him. We are the revelation of himself to a fallen world because Christ Jesus is in us and we are proclaiming and pointing people to him. I mean, this is the heart of the gospel. The good news is that God loved his creation so much that not only did he break through this blind barrier of sin to reveal himself to us, God himself provides the salvation from that sin to break the barrier. You hear that? He breaks through it. And then God establishes a kingdom in the hearts of men who then gather together as they are called together. And this gathering speaks the truth of the scriptures to the fallen world that God wants back. You hearing our role here, folks? God wants his creation back. And he's accomplished it all on the cross through his son, Jesus Christ. Our role is to confess that as individuals and corporately as his people. That's our role. And we're called to this. This gathering of people here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, we are to speak the truth of the scriptures to a fallen world that God wants back. That requires that we understand God's word. That's why we focus so much in studying God's word here. It's why we do that. The DNA of Sovereign Grace Baptist Church began as a Bible study with no vision that this would be a church. Yet here it is. So why are we here? I mean, the words of Jesus here are very clear. 
And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed us to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That is the message. You hearing this? Why are you here at church this morning? Why do you keep coming back week after week? I hope that these words of our Savior are the foundation of your heart. The gospel truth is that the kingdom of heaven is here. And it's Jesus' church. It's His. He called us together as the gathering of His faithful, as the gathering of saints. And when we do, this is where the connection and the events point to as a confession to him. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I am so thankful that your son, Jesus Christ, established this gathering. Not just this church particular, but the church throughout history. You your son, Jesus Christ, has called this together. He, he is the one who, who orders it together. And it is because of him that we point to him. So I pray, God, this morning that your word would resonate in us individually, but your word would resonate in us corporately as a church. We are here to proclaim Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead so that all sin can be wiped clean. And because of that, Lord, we praise you and we proclaim you, and that's the message that we confess. Lord, when we become lazy in this, when we become comfortable in our gatherings together, and and we focus more on the comfort level of our gatherings, and, and we focus more on our particular desires in gathering and worship, Lord, remind us that we are here not for ourselves, but to proclaim someone else. And that rock is your son, Jesus Christ, who is the center and the head of this congregation of your church. Lord, any of us in this room who are struggling with that, who have failed you in this, who have not proclaimed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, when we, we do fail in this, Lord, I pray that you would confess, that you would convict us and that we would come to you in repentance and that you would give us a confession, a proclamation, a, 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 a truth to proclaim and to preach to others. We need your gift of this because we wish to be faithful and obedient. So, Lord, I pray that today this would be your church and not ours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.